Hello, and welcome to Political Traction. It's the last week of the year, that ambling stretch where our bellies are full and we need to stop and think what day it is. By now, all the gifts are unwrapped except for one, our present to you, our loyal Political Traction listeners. Today, on a very special holiday episode of Political Traction, I'm joined by my colleagues, Rosa Ellithorpe, a senior consultant in Navigator's Edmonton office, Tasha Carradin, a principal at our Toronto office, and Michael Cook, senior advisor at Navigator and the former editor-in-chief of the Toronto Star. We'll discuss the top stories of the year, from Ottawa to Beijing and from the emergency room to the grocery store, as well as our predictions for what 2023 has in store for us all. This is Political Traction. So, Rosa, Tasha, Michael, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. So let's get started on talking about uh, the economy, because that was one of the bigger stories this year, and it will likely be an even bigger story next year. After about a year, almost a year of pointed criticism, the Bank of Canada has been in the spotlight more than I think any other year in recent memory. How have they fared politically? And and Tasha, I'll, I'll, I'll start by asking you. Well, it's interesting how you frame the question, because they're not supposed to be political. Right. They're supposed to be, they are at arms like government. They are supposed to make uh, decisions that are not affected by politics, but they've been politicized in part because of uh, the conservative leadership race earlier this year, where they came under fire from uh, the Pierre Polyev, who's now leader. And he continued even after to say that the Bank of Canada aired, um, that they uh, too much quantitative easing um, stim- overstimulated the economy. Uh, and also raising rates now the way they've done. I think they've raised at 400 basis points in the last, almost the last year or so, um, that that has caused or or exacerbated um, the recession that we're probably going to find ourselves in. So um, they haven't fared, I guess the average Canadian now probably does see them as more political as they were before. That's not a good thing because... Again, they are not supposed to be a political institution. And the last thing we would want is a government telling them what to do. They're trying to dispel the notion that they are a political institution. I'm not sure they've fully done that, though. I think they still have to, to work on it. Yeah, it, it it seems like if if the average Toronto Sun reader knows who Tiff Macklem is, then that's a bad day for Tiff Macklem. <laughs> yes, it is. It's when you are the news. In this case, you just don't want to be the news. Um you can be talked about to an extent, uh, but you don't want to be the subject of questions in the House of Commons. It's not a good look. I think the average Toronto Sun reader thinks the Bank of Canada is like an ATM and they're sort of wandering around looking to put their card in. You know, most Canadians, if they think at all about Tiff Macklin, and he's one of the most powerful people in the country, they think at all about him, they probably think he's like a third round NHL draft pick. When you ask how the bank's doing politically, I don't think anyone, any voter really knows. You go up and down my street and say, who's Tiff Macklin? And as I say, they think he's a hockey player. That, that's opposed to the, the prime minister and the finance minister who have acted as if the Bank of Canada was an ATM. Well, there is, <laughs> there is that. You know, it's, it's the criticism, such as it is, or how the bank is doing politically, I think, is it's these attacks that we keep reading about, these attacks against the Bank of Canada's independence. And I, and I don't think there are any attacks. I think it's just the ebb and flow of normal life, uh, 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 the economic life of the country. And Macklin himself says that there's no threat to my independence. So I, I, I don't think that there is. In fact, if he said there was a threat, that would be the story. Well, whether or not I agree with 
Macklin's policy to burn the village, you know, to, uh, you know, to save it, to try and get inflation back to whatever it is it's supposed to be, 3% or 2%, it, it, it really doesn't matter. We're on that track. If that leads to a recession, then there we go. And we're going to talk about the implications of a recession later. So Rosa, on that point, a lot of, well, many econ economists believe that we will see a recession of some size in 2023. How, how is that being felt in Alberta where, uh, you know, the, the good times were gone and then they were back again and now it looks like they're on their way out again. How is it, how is it playing out there? For sure. Well, we're coming up to an election uh, provincially in May of 2023. Um, so a national recession in a place where, uh, talking to economists here, they think Alberta is going to sweep by it. Like we're not going to feel it the way the rest of the country does. So there's going to be a big political narrative of we've done this for ourselves. We've worked for ourselves. Now we've made it out. And it's like a further pushback against Ottawa and a recession in the rest of the country against Prime Minister Justin Trudeau for Dan Premier Smith is it's beneficial. Like we're going to look at the rest of it and be come out of it pretty unscathed and they're going to use it for political capital moving forward. Now, the federal government has ordered divestiture of Chinese investors from critical mineral companies. Uh, it's a broadly popular move and maybe sticking with Alberta, but I'll open up, I'll open this up to, uh, to, to the panel, maybe sticking with Alberta because of uh, the natural resources and energy economy there. Um, it's a popular move to ask Chinese investors to take a backseat and, 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 and take a hike, uh, but it does have economic implications. Will we do we expect to see more of the federal government stepping in and and centrally planning, saying who can have a seat at the table and who's not who's not allowed? Well, let's stay with China for a second. I would say that that's it's a very aggressive move to uh, to tell Chinese companies they have to disinvest in Canadian companies. But I would say honestly that it's that it's about time that we set up and that our prime minister set up after COVID and Taiwan. And the list goes on, Hong Kong democracy, the genocide, uh, the intellectual property theft, the kidnapping of two Canadians, the police stations, which is a huge story, grossly underplayed in my opinion, the Chinese police stations across our country. It's a reaction to all those things. Uh, and it's about time. And if it costs us, if some farmers have to suffer for that, then so be it. And I think it's going to happen. What do you guys think? I agree. I actually wrote a column about this in the National Post. I agree with you. I know, Michael. Uh, I agree um, simply because it is, there's a common perception that, you know, China, China is our second largest trading partner, but what that actually amounts to is less than 5% of our exports. I think it's 14% of our imports, but less than 5% of exports, the bulk of them, 73% go to the United States. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a fallacy. We've learned that in the West, it's a fallacy that increasing trade with China will lead to liberalization and democracy. There was this idea that the West would trade its way to uh, democratic norms um, flourishing in China. And that goes back as far as, you know, Richard Nixon also creating a, an opposition to Russia, to the Soviet Union, as it was then using China as a bulwark against the Soviet threat. Well, the Soviet threat's gone. Now the threat's China. And uh, China learned from that. In fact, they have used economic power and soft power to do what military power uh, could have done, but do it much more efficiently, um, you know, essentially invest in hundreds of countries around the world um, where they needed infrastructure built, uh, chiefly underdeveloped nations, but also, um, you know, create a situation where they, they uh, affect the diaspora, where they intimidate the diaspora in many other countries, including Canada, as we've learned uh, through the police stations and other things that they've set up. So, um, Acknowledging it's a threat is about time, and the federal government has now an Indo-Pacific strategy. I don't think it goes far enough, but it's a start. 
uh, hopefully they will follow it. Yeah, and I think you have an opportunity to align a lot of different jurisdictions on this. My question is, we start with critical minerals and being in Alberta and the oil sands, how many people are invested in that? What companies are there? Are we hitting a snowball effect? Like we're looking at IP stuff now, how we're trading tech, all of that. Like there's a big swath of things we need to be thinking about in this. And if this is the tipping point, like we need to all be aligned on on something um, when it comes to divestiture from, from Chinese companies. We're beginning to stand up. And I think that's a good thing. Well, we are. I think that the issue, the big issue that has to be looked at and it's being looked at now is the allegations that there were um, 11 politicians who received funding in the 2019 election um, indirectly. It wasn't uh, directly from the Chinese Communist Party, but through intermediaries in Canada. And anything further, also, I think the 2021 election, we have to look at what happened there, too. There were there were um, conservatives who lost their seats. Uh, Bob Savoya uh, was one of them. Um uh, a couple of other people, I, names escape me at the moment, but that were targeted uh, online um, in uh, WeChat forums and other things um, by agents of the Communist Party. And partly because the conservatives and Aaron O'Toole had stood up and said, you know, um, Canada needs to take a harder line on China. And that wasn't seen as very favorably uh, in Beijing. So it's, you know, this kind of interference is this, is this national um, strategic and security issue. And unfortunately, yes, there will be some industrial casualties of that because because of the way China uses its trade policy, we don't have much choice but to um, ensure that their government isn't buying into our uh, companies. It's, it's not a fair playing field. That's the problem. Don't you find it a little strange that we have a, a prime minister who seems to be okay being the leader of a country that he says he's participating in an active genocide? And yet he says nothing about the active genocide going on where people are actually dying uh, in China. Just jumping back. Yes, I do think I do think it is odd that the, the prime minister is willing to criticize uh, Canadian history and while doing active business with a, a regime that's arguably arguably much worse. It's probably one of the most effective but bad faith rhetorical arguments for, that the bad actors of the world use, you know. We, we, I think, rightly criticize our own history at times. Um, we should be criticizing China more. Uh, but there are people out there who are saying, well, just, you're criticizing China, but you're not criticizing Saudi Arabia, or you're not criticizing Qatar, or you're not criticizing uh, any any number of other actors in the world. And and it's a shame that that rhetorical argument is so effective, because because uh, it tends to shut down meaningful debate. Yeah. And isn't it it's actually like a psychological argument? It's like the yeah, but theory. There's something more. There's something more academic that we call it, but we do it in our personal lives and then on our. Exactly. So let's move away from the international sphere and talk about our domestic politics, uh, specifically the confidence and supply agreement between the NDP and the Liberal Party at the federal level. Um, a number of uh, pundits have uh, weighed in on whether they think this deal will last the month or the next year. Uh, but one interesting thing that we saw last week in in Ontario is in the Mississauga Lakeshore by-election, a complete collapse of the NDP vote, uh, where they typically poll about 10%. They polled, I believe, 5%. And while coverage initially was focused more on what this means for the Conservatives, and Tasha, I know you wrote you wrote about this, uh, what what are the challenges for the NDP moving into this new year? It seems like they just end the, no, end the year on a, on a pretty sour note. And uh, it seems like they're a bit, they're, casting about looking for looking for uh, or something to stick on. They have a problem. 
they have a serious problem because they're being their lunch is being eaten at both ends. Um, the liberals are eating the progressive and uh, people who are looking to the government for um, more spending, uh, more social programs, this kind of thing. Um, and then you've got the uh, traditional worker base um, of the union base that then the, I guess you'd say everyday Canadian, or I can't remember what Ed Broadbent called them, but um, back in the day, the conservatives are going after that vote. Lunchbox voters. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, the ordinary Canadians, actually, that's what it was. Yes, but lunchbox voters, the conservatives are going after those those folks too, um, with Pierre Polyev's common people slogan. So the NDP is being crushed in between this vice. And what you saw in Mississauga Lake Shore, I think also, is that they... They're, they're faced with this fear factor that the liberals are going to say that, you know, oh my God, if you vote liberal, you're going to get a conservative government. So you better come over here. Um, I don't know what Jagmeet Singh does to fight this. It's, it's really tough because everything that he does to get the liberals to, to adopt NDP type policies on dental care, or whatever, the liberals are going to take credit for that. Honestly, not sure what the answer is. If that happens, it's going to be very interesting in that you know, I, I think is a, it's a probably a true reflection of the country that as a voting group, uh, we're predominantly left of center. And so if, if the NDP votes do strategically flee to the Liberals in the next federal election as a way to not just stopping the a conservative government, but stopping Poilievre, who they see as another Trump, if they do that, then we're gonna have a, we're gonna have a Liberal government for the foreseeable future. And it may be a real reflection of the way the country thinks. What I think it means is that you're not going to see an election anytime soon, unless the liberals call one. And that is the wild card, I think. Um, you know, is Trudeau going to run again? And if so, would he want to pull the trigger sooner rather than later? Not wait for the NDP to bring him down, but say, hey, I want a fresh mandate um, and do it. So that's the big question to me to watch in 2023 is, is for, for a vote. Is, is it going to be the liberals doing it? Because I don't think the NDP has any incentive to. Well, they don't have any money. <laughs> they can't fight an election. They got themselves in a really great, uh, like, like considering they don't have enough money to fight an election, the confidence and supply agreement is convenient, uh, aside from all of the points that that, that, that we raised, that, that all of the glow off of any meaningful legislation they pass is going to, uh, conventional wisdom is, is that it's going to benefit the liberals and liberals are going to be able to, to take care of it. Put a big red L on the uh, on the dental plan. And if I'm the if I'm Jagmeet Singh, I'm looking at okay, what benefits my party the most? If I back out of this and we go into an election, we're not winning. That, that that's my leadership on the line. And if I stay in it, I can actually impact some change. I might not get credit for it. From Alberta perspective, both ways is great for the provincial government here. They have the not leasing Trudeau Alliance posters everywhere. That are playing into a, a like a very good voting base for them and creating a real narrative. And if that collapses, well, then you just get to go again on that vice you were talking about, Tasha, of, of the what I call the traditional brown shirt um, NDP that that the conservative base is starting to pull in, and they're trying to pull it in from even the the provincial um, NDP right now. And so it's it's switching. So I see federally, if it goes either way, it's great for a lot of provincial um, conservative parties. It's interesting that. that Mr. Singh got the Prime Minister to agree to some specific terms and for you know for that for the NDP support. And, and but some of those terms are very vague, especially um, on the key healthcare ones. I think the phrase, I've got to open quotes here, I'm making the air quotes, additional ongoing investments, you know, which that of course can 
mean whatever you want it to mean, which means it's meaningless. Um, and now Mr. Singh says he wants to see action, which is another sort of meaningless phrase. And do you guys agree that it's very cynical of him to go straight to the emotion, you know, that children's lives are at stake because of an increase in uh, breathing in respiratory illnesses he's talking he's talking to parents though yeah parents parents are the one i i think actually like that healthcare is it's a provincial issue but when you frame it in those terms and say look it's just we we don't have the resources and government you know you you got to open the taps ottawa i mean this is this isn't new this this demand though you know the i think they want 35 percent now to be funded by the federal government that would be a big jump from what it is currently um, but if you remember that, you know, the escalator clauses were frozen under Stephen Harper, I think it was 6% um, when he was uh, in power, maybe I'm, I'm doing this wrong, but uh, he froze them, def definitely did it at some point. And so for Trudeau to go back on that and say, we're going to, we're going to change the formula, we're going to increase it. Um, it's within his power to do it. I think that this is a season, exactly. It's a seasonal thing. So it, you know, the children though are a powerful image and they're going to stick around perhaps longer than people think, especially for parents who are really frustrated, frustrated and angry. They can't get even tell off their kids. So it's an anger point against Trudeau. And if you're going to run a campaign of anger, it's effective. Especially when you see the same headlines being reported across different provinces. Like, yes, healthcare is a provincial mandate. But when you, when you see the problems that you're seeing in your own community uh, being reflected in other provinces, that other provinces' children's hospitals are closing down, that other... Uh, provinces, drugstores can't keep uh, stock of, uh, of of children's medicine. Then it does become a federal a federal issue, at least in I think in voters' minds, because it's a national problem. Rosa, isn't isn't your premier already going offside with uh, talking about health savings accounts and moving more towards opening a a, a, a path to private healthcare? And and honestly, I, I hate to drill it down to a political tactic because it is real people's lives, but a great political tactic by the provinces, by the premiers getting together and standing up. Like you're deflecting one of your biggest issues onto someone else's plate. And here in Alberta, like, why wouldn't we? We're going into an election. We're already against Trudeau. We need to fix our healthcare system. We tried to do it during the pandemic and the UCP stuck to it and then destroyed relationships across the board. Now I'm going, sorry, the feds are making us do this if we want more money to help you. So, so that's an interesting that, that's an interesting facet to this. We're seeing these greater fractures between Ottawa and the provinces. How does that context and climate affect the ability of Trudeau to hammer through a top-down and truly federal healthcare deal, which he signaled he's asking for? And 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 he's it seems like he's very close to telling the provinces this is this is the deal, and if you don't like it, you can take a hike. Well, it puts the provinces in a tough spot in one way because he's offering something and if they refuse it, then they're not going to be taking the help, right? That people will say, well, uh, my kid needs help now kind of thing. Kids need help now. We need help now. Take it um, and and try and build on more later. So it, I think that Trudeau knows that if he, if he puts something on the table and the provinces reject it, he'll make them, to Rose's point, he'll make them wear that, Right. Um, and yes, the provinces are going then if some of them have elections, as we know, Alberta has an election. Um, that might be, though, a reason for Daniel Smith to say, no, I'm not, because she knows that standing up to Ottawa works for her. So everyone's going to play politics with it. This is this is what frustrates me, because it is, I think, the most important issue right now for so many people. But it has become a political football. 
It's very strange how Canadians are so scared of the word private when it when when it comes to healthcare. And I realize that there's only two things that separate us from the United States, Canadian healthcare and King Charles III. But it's like every doctor's office is 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 private. Um uh, abortion clinics are private. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, care for the elderly is private. We're, we're, many blood labs are private. It's as though we're scared of that word. And 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 as as Tasha was saying about Europe, you know, the the British NHS system is 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 the jewel in the crown. It's got its problems, of course, but it's jewel in the crown of the United Kingdom. But it's a two tier system, and it seems to work well. And we're very frightened of it. And I I don't not quite sure why we've had it drilled into us that once we open up healthcare to uh, private insurance, the country will unravel somehow. Well, Quebec's ahead of, been ahead of the curve on this for years. I mean, um, because of the Sholi decision uh, back in 2005, when it was decided that, you know, there's three three operations where the government was not living up to its, its charter responsibilities under the Quebec charter to provide timely care. Um, so hip operations and the operations, I think cataracts was the third. So you can get a private alternative to that. You can pay in Quebec for those those three operations if you want to get them. There are a lot of clinics in Quebec now. And, you know, I think, I mean, Canada is so behind the OECD on this. We always compare ourselves to the United States and we are, you know, living next to them. So I guess it's kind of natural. But but what I like a system like in Sweden or Switzerland or Germany or France. Uh, yeah, I would prefer that. I would prefer to have choice. But anytime you raise that issue you're immediately accused of wanting to to bring in u.s style be like the u.s i know but this is the thing is that europe europe has been chugging along for decades they have a better record than us in terms of dollars spent per per person they it's less they have lower waiting lists uh you know i've been to sweden you could you could clean the floor you could, you could eat off the floor of the karolinska hospital and only 10 percent of the care there is in the private space that people use it it's not like it overwhelms the system at all. They have guardrails. It works beautifully. You guys find it strange that we've got in, in, in Ontario, we've got about, I'm sure it's the same proportionally across the rest of the country, perhaps. We've got about twelve to 13,000 uh, immigrants who are qualified doctors, nurses, medical technicians who can't work because the paperwork just takes too long to do. And finally, Ontario is now fast-tracking uh, a whole chunk of those people to get them into employment. I don't think, for example, that a doctor coming from Glasgow or coming from Kabul should land at, at, at PSN and start work on Monday morning. I get that. But we have to have a better system, a faster system to assess mm -hmm. those people's qualifications and get them to work under supervision. And now we're beginning to start that process about 10 years too late, but we're doing it. Well, thank the pandemic. I mean, the shortage of, of I think it, it, it's a question now that the shortage has become so acute. Um, because that the colleges and other bodies that lobby against this kind of thing. You mean, the, you mean those colleges that are self-styled, self-elected, self-perpetuating, self-governing trade unions? Correct. Well, those are those are things that that the medical community is is asking for. The CMA is asking for interprovincial licensure, for example. That there's no reason why a doctor in uh, on the east coast can't uh, move up north or move out west if that if if that province needs their specific uh, specialization. Uh, and, and I think that these are the kind of policy or, or uh, system modernizations that a lot of people point to when they say it's not just about money. Like throwing money onto the pile is not going to solve our healthcare system overnight. It'll just make people make more, which in the case of nurses is probably, probably helpful. But uh, there are a lot of things like 
the fact that uh, certain like ph pharmacists are handcuffed in some provinces into what they're able to prescribe, sending people into ER. Th that, that's where we're going to see success on this, not governments, successive governments throwing more and more and more money onto a pile that is optimized to burn money. Yeah, well, I think that's where you can get where the feds talk about having requirements for this added in health transfers. Those are the places you can align on. Figure out your credentialing because skilled skilled labor credentialing, never mind medicine, across the country is a problem. We have labor mobility issues. So let's get our credentialing up to speed. Get more spaces open. Expand your scope of practices for nurse practitioners and pharmacists and those kind of things. Like these are the things that I think the federal government can find alignment if they're setting requirements for this money that aren't just throwing money on the table. It's actually finding efficiencies that have been studied and recommended over and over and over again in probably every province. But we do the same thing when we change government. We put it on the shelf and then we pull it back out. Like look at the nurse overtime issue. Like we talk about not paying nurses enough, but we're spending billions in overtime because we're not fixing the fact that they're all working point fours. We're burning people out. So those kind of things are, like if we're putting universal requirements on a universal healthcare system and not throwing the money at it, Let's put like reasonable things that the public can actually understand and we're not going to fight those. So we're coming up, we're coming up on time. Uh, as we go into the new year, uh, I want to go around the table and just ask, uh, what do you think, what's your big prediction for 2023? Uh, what do you think will be the top story, the the one that, that everybody should follow? And, and Michael, why don't we start with you? Well, I think the, it's been a big story in Canada for some time and we'll get bigger in the next two or three years, which is our immigration policy where we're bringing in... Uh, I think it's 1.2 or 1.3 million new new uh, immigrants in the next two or three years. I want to know what the plan is. We have a housing crisis. Uh, we have a health crisis. Uh, we don't have enough plumbers uh, or, or carpenters or doctors or nurses, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't think we've been told what's the plan. How are we going to deal with all these people are going to big cities more than likely. What's that mean to the green belt? What's it mean to housing? Uh, I don't know how we decide who gets in and who gets out. It's just not explained by our media. I'm sure if we ask the questions, we'll get an explanation, but I, we just don't know. I mean, for example, on this next tranche that's coming in, we're cutting the share uh, as a proportion. We're cutting the share of economic uh, and skilled immigrants and bumping up the, the, the number for refugees. That might be fine, but it probably is, but I'd like to know more about that. And the, one of the problems with asking questions about immigration is that it's a third rail. And you have to frame those questions very, very carefully. Otherwise, you know, people throw insults at you. So that's the big story for the next three years for this country and may end up being the big story for the next 30 years. Well, they're going to be really upset when they get here and they can't get any Tylenol. <laughs> okay, I'm going to weigh in and say uh, what I think the story, the story I'll be watching um, is I'll be watching the economy writ large. Um, it sounds pretty vague, but uh, I think it's going to determine whether we do actually see an election next year uh, or whether it's deferred to the year after that. I don't think the confidence and supply motion is going to hold. I think it's going to be at the pleasure of the liberals that we get an election or not. They're going to, they're going to decide when to pull the trigger. Um, and I think that uh, the economy is going to be a big piece of that because the worse it gets, the better for the conservatives um, traditionally. And I think that that is the, the Achilles heel the liberals have. So if the economy starts to turn around then my my bets politically are that you're gonna you're gonna see rumblings of an election pretty quickly. I'm gonna watch um, how are Canadians under forty reacting next year post COVID fallout. Can't afford anything, working too hard, kids don't have any support. Like I look at my group of friends and they're 
And why am I doing this job? Why am I living here? Why don't I move back here and I can do something remote for half the time and still survive? So when we talk about a skilled labor shortage and stuff, I just think we're seeing a huge generator, generational shift for people under 40 and what life value is and where we're going. And I think we're really going to see the impacts of that now that people get on their feet post-COVID. Well, we're seeing a few polls that show practically pretty much unthinkably that young people, people under 35 are are voting uh conservative or intending to vote conservative over over left-leaning parties and that is unique to canada other first world countries don't don't have that trend so uh it will be very interesting to see how young people face the future because it's theirs it is it's fine we're not dead yet adam I told my dad the other day, I owe more to my son than I owe to you. And and he got a little a little chippy about that, but uh but thought about it. And uh I I I think he understood what we were we we came to an understanding around that. Well, didn't Quebec just tip the scales on more people are taking out of their pension than going in? They're the first province to do that. They are the oldest province. That would make sense that demographically they're they're uh yeah. the oldest province in Canada. Yeah. Well, I think Newfoundland actually might be older, but Quebec is pretty up there. The most yeah. uh the most resistant to immigration as Correct. well. So we'll see how that works out. <laughs> how that them. works out, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Tasha, Rosa, Michael, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. And I hope you have a uh, uh, very happy new year. Thank you, too. Thank you. <laughs> Political Traction is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. Our show was edited by Zeus Eden and produced by Thomas Ashcroft, Matthew Barnes, Jeff Costin, Jenny McElwain, and Holden Wine. I'm your host, Adam Owen. We'll see you next year.